0: Tears are coming out of your eyes. Smoke is just everywhere. Snot's coming out of your nose. And you're just, it's kind of almost, almost every man for himself at that point. You kind of know the direction you need to get out to go. And you're just like, ah, get me out of here, Ah! Robert.
1: Los Angeles, this is Code 3, the Firefighter's Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again for another edition of Code 3. This is the show that gives you all the firefighting information you need in about 20 minutes. Let's get started. Fighting wildland fires is a very different proposition than fighting structure fires. For starters, wildland guys sleep on the ground for days at a time. And then there's the lack of hydrants on their fire grounds. They have to carry in all their gear, often walking miles to reach their assigned areas. But it seems to me that wildland firefighters, for the most part, wouldn't trade their jobs for structure firefighting. Today we're talking with a man who joined a Type 2 hand crew when he was in his 30s. That's pretty old for a wildland firefighter, most are a decade younger than that. But Charles Vaught took advantage of his perspective and several seasons on the hand crew to write a book. It's titled State of Fire, Life Lessons Learned on the Fire Line. It's a fascinating book, often raw, sometimes profane, that takes a look at a different kind of firefighting. And Charles Vaught joins me now. Welcome to Code 3.
0: Oh, thank you for having me, Scott. This is a, a great honor to be on here.
1: Thank you. So you first became a wildland firefighter during a break from college. But how old were you?
0: I was 34 at the
1: time. So you weren't a kid anymore.
0: No, 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 no. I was I was far from being a kid. I was 34 and I was the I was on a 20 man hand crew, the Highlands 20, and I was I believe I was the oldest person on the crew besides the crew boss. The crew boss was the oldest person at 44 and I was the next oldest at 34.
1: So most people would have chosen to be a waiter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Why, why did you choose this job?
0: Honestly, I needed money. And I also didn't know too much about wild and firefighting.
1: Did it sound easy?
0: No, it it I've I've always been pretty adventurous and have done you know manual labor things. Um I've I've worked on fishing boats in Alaska. Um I've planted trees in the wilds of the Pacific Northwest. And I was a broke college student, and I I, I came to time for my, close to my, it was after spring break, and I was like, well, I need to make some money. I have two options that I felt like. Either I could go to the oil fields in North Dakota, because I had friends that worked there, or I could try wild and firefighting, which I had friends that did that as well. And... I really didn't know anything about wildland firefighting, but I was like, well, it can't be too hard. My my other friends do it. And um they they didn't tell when I asked my friend, I said, "So so what is it like? What do what do you do? What is it what, what do I do as a wildland firefighter?" And this is this is all he told me. He said, "Well, as long as you like to work hard and drink beer around a campfire, you'll fit in just fine."
1: Oh. That's a great recruit. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, I don't think it really captures the essence of the job. No,
0: no, it, it certainly does not. So to say that I was going in blind is an understatement. But I quickly picked up what what was needed of me and uh, required of me and expected of me, and uh, and I loved it. I, I I truly I fell in love with it. There was just something magical about being. Out there with this crew of men, and we're we're doing something that makes a difference. And it was, if it, if it wasn't for my knee, I would still be out there doing it right
1: now. Reading the book, I got the idea that you weren't really ready for what the job entailed. What were those first days like? <laughs> the first
0: days, my first line, my first line dig. I thought I was going to have a heart attack. I was not prepared for what was expected of me. But yeah, the the first line dig that we did was a practice line dig. And for those listeners that are not familiar with a line dig, a line dig is you dig a line around a wildfire to prevent it from spreading. And we started hiking up this mountain. And this is a practice line dig. This is not even a a real line dig. And I had a chainsaw on my shoulder and 45-pound line pack on my back. And I'm in all my Nomex. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is it. There's no joking around. There's no, this, this is it. This is serious. And I remember hiking up there and my heart's just pounding in my chest. And then we got to it and started doing it. And it's one thing to do it in practice, but then when you're doing it in real life, it's just, it's, you just get this adrenaline rush and you get the smoke and the helicopters and the squawk of the radio and everything combining all into one. And it's, 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 there's nothing quite like it. I've never experienced anything like fighting wildfire before or since.
1: Now, the Highlands 20 is an initial attack hand crew. Yes, sir. How is being on a hand crew different from a hotshot team?
0: The only difference is that a between the Highlands 20, and a which is a type 2 initial attack um, fire crew, and a hotshot crew, is that the highlands 20 it's a state it's run from by the washington state DNR and they don't hire their employees long enough to be considered a shot crew so shot crews usually have a crew soup and a few other overhead that stay on year round and the highlands 20 fire crew as far as i understand they don't <laughs> the state will not extend their employment and that is what that is the only dividing line that keeps them from from being a shot crew. We did the same assignments as shot crews. We did burns. You know, we would do felling operations. We would work side by side with shot crews as well and smoke jumpers. And in 2015, when that was uh, a record-breaking fire year, record-breaking fire season for Washington State, we were kind of on our own. So we were basically just operating sort of of our own shot crew as as a, in a way because often we would get to fires and we would be the first resource on scene and
1: And the only resource
0: and we would yeah we would have to we would do backburns and it would just be kind of just left to our own discretion
1: now having said that you did have a section in the book where you described working next to a hot tech crew member and based on your description i pictured this guy being about six five being made of gold and (laughs) in the sun you know, and he's got his golden chainsaw, his golden Pulaski, and then then he pulls out his mustache comb.
0: Yes, yes. Tweaks his
1: mustache and begins to work again.
0: Yes, correct. So correct. If That's
1: how is that how you? I mean, yeah, I know you elaborated a bit, but is that how you guys felt about them?
0: Yeah, I mean, Hotshot crews just seemed like the the epitome of wildland firefighting. They are, you know, they are the ones to look up to. But then. Up over and above hotshots are smoke jumpers, and they're the ones that I really bow down to, because if anyone is is uh, brave enough and or crazy enough to jump out of an airplane into a wildfire.
1: So describe for me the most frightening situation you ever found yourself in while you were fighting fire.
0: Oh, that's very very easy. The most frightening situation I was ever in while fighting fire was. It was in August of 2015. We were doing a back burn in the Sin Lohican Valley of north central Washington. And we had an expected wind shift that was going to go from north to south. And we were expecting that at 3 p.m. So we were going to get our burn done in the morning. Well, that wind shift came at noon, right when we were putting fire mm. on the ground, quite a bit of fire on the ground. And a fire mm. whirl whipped up through these erratic winds and it started to spin and then it tipped over and continued to spin on the ground <laughs> and which caused chaos and smoke everywhere and everything was blowing in our faces and then if we had to RTO, so we all had to pull out immediately and get out of the situation and you can't see tears are coming out of your eyes smoke is just like is everywhere snot's coming out of your nose and you're just it's kind of almost almost every man for himself at that point you kind of know the direction you need to get out to go and you just kind of you're just walking like a zombie just like ah get me out of here ah and yeah that was that was one of the scariest situations when you can't see and you know the fire's right there yeah it gets pretty real
1: It sounds like it would be a wildly different experience than a structural firefighter experience. um, I mean, they're both scary in their own way, but that's sort of primal.
0: Very primal. That's a very good way to put it. I've spoken, I know quite a few structured firefighters, and they always are like, just, you know, kind of tip their cap to me. And they're like, oh, you know, wildland firefighters, good Good on you, but I would never do that.
1: You guys are nuts, yeah. Yeah, like
0: I would I'd rather I'd rather do, deal with what I have to deal with, but it seems like like structure firefighters deal with more EMT calls these days than fires. So,
1: that's certainly true.
0: So I I would personally rather deal with fires than with an EMT call.
1: And I think they would too, but on the other hand, maybe not after hearing your story. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> That's a very good point. That's a very good point.
1: <laughs> so you and the crew also had fun, as your friend sort of described. And a lot of that fun should probably be left for people who read the book. Yeah. And so they can learn it from your, from your book. But can you tell me about how you blew off steam?
0: A lot of times, uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain humor that comes with the job that if you don't have this kind of sense of humor, that things are going to be pretty hard. So you kind of have like, pranks were very prevalent on my fire crew. And there were all kinds of pranks that we did. Some were very innocent. It's it's a very demanding job. So you would, you would try to sleep whenever you could. And even if it was for a five minute break, you were knocking out during those five minutes. Well, sometimes you'd wake up and you'd you know, try to rise to your feet and find your line pack, which is on your back, um, to be quite a bit heavier, because someone had put a quite a few large rocks in your, in your line pack, (laughs) Uh, you know.
1: So they wouldn't disturb your sleep, because that's important, but once you're awake, it's a free-for-all.
0: Once you're awake, and and you try to get up, you're like, that feels like it's about 70 pounds, not 45 pounds, that's that feels <laughs> significantly heavier than it did before. <laughs> yeah, so innocent things like that. There were some times that there were some pranks that did not make it into the book. For instance, taking like a, at a fire camp, you would, you'd get your meal. And sometimes you would take like a piece of broccoli or a piece of shrimp or something to that effect. And then you'd go and you'd, you'd hide that in like the, uh, your other squad's buggy. So that way it would stink after a few days. And if you had if you hit it well enough, they couldn't find it. So <laughs> they just had to deal with it. Every, every, but everyone stunk so bad anyways, just from the sweat and the smoke, that it it really it would have to be something extremely potent for them to smell over all yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. But but our, our, our pranks our pranks were never meant to 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 hurt anyone. They meant to just almost bond us together even more.
1: You wrote that there was a sign at the Highlands Twenty Eight Course. It says "Better than water." Yes. After, after having done that job for several seasons, what do you think of that slogan now?
0: <laughs> I think yes and no. I actually had a, a, a crew. I, I I I I think that water is better actually, but um. But uh, you don't have it. But unless you don't have it, but. Yeah. Oddly enough, I had a, a former Highlands 20 crew member reach out to me, and we talked for about half an hour one day, and he, he'd he been on the crew from 1988 to 1991, and he told me how that saying came to be. The crew boss, many years ago, back in 88, was so impressed and so proud of, of not having to mop up with water that that was that's that was his his little catchphrase that he would say and then that became the slogan that was that was carved onto a wooden sign outside of our fire camp
1: now we think of wildland firefighters as people who really do fight fire with fire
0: oh yes that is very correct
1: god bless them you hear people every now and then commenting on the internet why don't they just use water well, there aren't too many fire hydrants out in the middle of the wilderness waiting to be opened up, you know. <laughs> well, they just don't know.
0: That—that that is very true. I certainly did not know that that was a tactic that was used before I became a wildland firefighter. I—I I, I would have thought, oh, just put water on it, duh, that's what you do. But when you, when you're actually out there and you're you you understand the dynamics of wildfire and you understand what once once it becomes clear that you need to destroy the fuel between you and the fire then it clicks into place when you're like oh fighting fire with fire i get it now okay
1: so you described for a second that you would go back if it weren't for your knees is that right yes tell me what caused you to wrap up your career as a wildland firefighter
0: my left knee for starters, I've I have met numerous wildland firefighters that have had multiple knee surgeries and or hip replacement surgeries, and this is these are guys in their 40s. These are not these are not older gentlemen that are that are experiencing these problems. These are these are relatively young 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 men that are that are experiencing these problems. And uh, I did not want my I, I have a bum knee anyways from a from just an injury from when I was a kid. And over this last winter, it really, because I I was, I was planning on fighting fire again this, this fire season. But in around January, February, my left knee started giving me grief. And so I decided that I would not fight fire any longer because I do not want to have to get knee surgery. <laughs> I th- the last thing I wanted was to become an incident within an incident. And have uh, my knee blow out on me on a fire. And that's what I was, I was very afraid of happening. One of the things that, that wildland firefighting taught me was to know my limits ah. and to know that I'm not uh, invincible. I, I, I might feel young, but I'm not young and my body does not snap back into shape like it used to.
1: Yeah. All right. The book is State of Fire Life Lessons Learned on the Fireline. Charles Vaught, thanks for talking with me today.
0: Thank you, Scott. I greatly appreciate it.
1: You really need to read this book. It's worth your time, even if you know Wildland Firefighting already. There's a link to order it on our website at code3podcast.com slash stateoffire. Check it out. And if you know someone who might be interested in Charles' experiences working with the Wildland Fire crew, then tell them about this episode of Code 3. I think they'll find it intriguing. And of course, it will help get more people listening to Code 3, which I always appreciate. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to code3podcast.com.